Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Glad that you have dialed in to us today. I want to say congratulations to Daniel and Carlton on their milestone of uh, completing the, their internship. I want to take a moment of time before we actually jump into our life lesson to recognize your contribution to the Soul Sanctuary community. And so, Daniel and Carlton, I honestly have to say how much I've appreciated watching you both grow spiritually, but also I need to recognize what you've brought to the table. Daniel, what you've done with our youth, and Carlton, what you've done in our media department, you've both been, I have to admit, a tremendous gift and an asset to our community, and much of your work actually... Uh, See, but you need to know it, it has never gone unnoticed. And uh, now you're heading off into a new direction of life, and I want to pray God's speed on both of you. God's speed may, is may God prosper you. And so after a year of listening, of learning, of training, my prayer is that you will feel spiritually equipped now to go into the future knowing just who you are and what you are called to do. And allow me at this moment just to share a little blessing over the two of you in your future. So for Daniel and for Carlton, may God's bright flame from the lamp of knowledge guide you. May God's warm glow off the pages of Scripture comfort you. May the cool baptism waters of God continue to refresh you in your endings and new beginnings. And may your soul always be fed at Christ's table. May your heart always be open to the presence of the Holy Spirit. And may your mind be transformed in the mighty presence of of the great I am. That is my blessing to you guys. May your future be bright. Now let me jump into our life lesson this morning. Again, we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians and a letter that Paul is writing to believers. He's writing to people who identify as Christian. And we discovered that in the first four books of the chapter, um, first four chapters of the book, let me rephrase that, uh, that there was a problem of uh, division within the church. These, these little factions that were going on, each with their own little leader, they, they sort of reared their ugly heads. And there's this worldly wisdom now that was being embraced as a, a replacing, really, the wisdom of God. And add to that pride. And pride is uh, one of the disgusting marks and distinguishing marks of these Corinthians because it actually uh, infiltrates through the entire letter. It's their false pride, really. It's these Corinthians have begun to judge Paul, and they began to judge all these other apostles unfairly, and they looked down upon Paul, they looked down upon his ministry, they looked down upon his message, but they looked at themselves of ha having it all together. Last week, we were in chapter 5, and we read where Paul rebukes the church for failing to exercise church discipline on a man who's actually sleeping with his father's wife. They've misunderstood how... Uh, you know, in Paul's previous letter to the church, supposing that he was teaching that Christians' separation had to be from unbelievers and sinners and just keep away from them. But Paul corrects them. And he corrects this mis, uh, misconception by insisting that the separation that he advocates is a separation from people who profess to be Christians, but they're totally Christians. The practice, the way they live their lives, is totally contrary to the Scripture. 
in my study and, and just sort of, you know, going through uh, old notes, I came across an old video I shared with uh, Sol a while back. It's probably not the best example of what Paul is talking about in chapter 5, but it's definitely worth the watch because it sort of articulates what most pastors feel at one time or another when it comes to dealing with sin in the church. So now we find ourselves in chapter 6. And Paul takes up issues more directly with the Corinthian church. In the first 11 verses, Paul addresses the fact that uh, the sinful divisions of the Corinthian saints have now made their way into public view into the civil courts. And so Paul now asks a question. We're picking up at verse 1. It says, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Paul is actually upset here. And there are several things that are causing Paul to be distressed. And the first thing is, is that he's speaking specifically of Christians who are taking fellow believers to court. You know, secondly, these disputes between believers, you know, not only are being taken to secular courts with unbelieving judges looking over them uh, and, and being asked to arbitrate between Christians, but when these disputes are there, it's public. This whole ugly ordeal is carried out before the curious eyes of unbelieving spectators. And the world gets to watch these Christians now fight in court. You know, last week we looked at how believers should deal with issues of sin within the church. And, and we looked at it in light of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter, 15 verse, or chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And what we see is that uh, disputes between believers need to be resolved as privately as possible. If a believer has a dispute or an offense with another, one another, this, should be the, this has to be addressed first personally and privately. It needs to be addressed one-to-one. If this doesn't bring about any reconciliation or any harmony, then two witnesses need to be brought into it. And if this doesn't result in any repentance or reconciliation, then the matter should be taken to the church. And if the belligerent party um, doesn't change, doesn't listen to any of the admonition that's taking place, then, you know, technically, they need to be expelled from the church. This is what Paul is writing. These are tough words, especially when we look at it and try to apply it into our culture today. And what Paul is bothered about is that instead of these individuals at, at Corinth going to, through a local process, what they've done is they've gone straight to court. They've taken their grievances straight to local courts to seek a judgment from an unbelieving judge. They're fighting publicly. They're not even, there's not even uh, any cooperation on working out the problem. So Paul continues to write and he says in verse 2, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. You can almost hear Paul's passion in, in the inflection as you read through this. You know, he's asking the Corinthians a series of questions which indirectly expose their pathetic condition. 
There are five times in this chapter Paul asks the questions, do you not know? There's a little bit of sarcasm that he's got going on there because it, it strikes a blow to the Corinthian pride. Remember, the Corinthians thought that they were wise. They thought they had it together. And Paul asks these questions. Well, don't you? And his first question is, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? They did know this. As a matter of fact, they were taught the scriptures. They would be very familiar with the prophetic passage of Jan Daniel chapter 7. You know, Paul assumes uh, that they do know it and that their actions are completely uh, contradictory to their theology. If these saints are going to reign with Christ and participate in the judgment of the world, how in the world can these Corinthians now turn to non-believers for judgment? This is what Paul is saying. If the righteous will judge the unrighteous at the end of time, at the second coming, how can the Corinthian Christians now be looking to a heathen judge to judge the righteous? Paul's saying your priorities are all turned upside down. And he drives home the point that if the saints will judge both the world and the angels at the coming of Christ, then why in the world do they turn to the Roman judicial system to pronounce judgment in its dispute between two believers? And this is especially true after what Paul had already written in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. In chapter 4, Paul assures the Corinthians, he's not trying to shame them by what he says. He said, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Remember, that was chapter 4, but now we're in chapter 6. And so you can tell that as Paul's writing this letter, he's getting a little bit more agitated. And he actually tries to shame them here. And rightly so, I have to say that. They have to be ashamed of themselves for taking their disputes into open as in front of the unbelievers. The very people that they should be trying to reach. Those very people are now looking at these Christians in, in amazement, or better yet, in amusement. We're often told by psychological experts that there's a, there's a great difference between guilt and shame. And that shame has actually no place in our dealings with other people. Actually, shame should be our response to guilt. We should feel ashamed for those things for which we are truly guilty of before God. And while the guilt of our sin is forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus, when we ask Jesus to forgive us, when we look back on the evil things that we have done, we should be aware of that. And that's where that shame comes from. Romans 6.21, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Again, when we look back at some of the actions or words or things that we have said and done, there's shame there because we know we shouldn't have been like that. This is what Paul's trying to get these guys to look at. Paul then asks, is there not even one wise person among you qualified to judge the dispute between these two Corinthian saints? And again, he's taking a blow to their pride. These are the ones who are so wise in their own eyes. These are the ones who are so quick to judge Paul. And these saints can you know, proudly follow one leader and condemn the rest. But Paul is saying, well, ho, ho, you guys are so wise. Why is there nobody able to judge these mundane matters that are going on? And instead, what has happened now, the saints are at one another's throats. And all at the while that the world is looking on. Paul continues on. 
He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. You know, for the competitive Christians, life is all about winning and losing. Lawsuits are certainly about winning and losing. Paul makes a very troubling observation that the Corinthian Christian, you know, is, who, who takes his brother or sister to court has already lost. Think about that. You know, we get so caught up in the injustices of others that we cannot let go or even forgive when minor offenses occurs to us. And I actually, I have to say this. This is the plight of humanity. Our unforgiving and latching on to injustices is just an expression of humanity's fallen state. In other words, there's actually a bit of a socialist in each and every one of us. You know, as soon as somebody offends us, we want them punished immediately. You know, but not so much when we are the ones who are offending others, right? But we want to punish those who offend us. We have our own cancel culture right now. And in our world, people see others as an opportunity to take advantage of or uh, somebody to guard against. There's a strife that's always going on. This idea that all reality is based on power and that everybody will take advantage of you, right? Everybody's out there to take advantage of you and they're going to try to overcome you if you don't keep your wits about yourself. But where does that way of thinking lead us? Where does it get us? Well, in this case... Going to court with a fellow believer is a no-win situation. And Paul is saying the better way is to take a loss. Think about that. This is what Paul is telling him. The better way for you guys, instead of going to court, is just take the loss. Imagine Paul telling us that it's better to be a victim than a victor. Paul's addressing the pride issue in their life. None of us, when you think of it, none of us want to take the loss. And that's because of our pride, is it not? We don't want to let other people get the better of us. I know I, it's, it's no different than driving when somebody wants to pass you and you speed up, right? We don't want people to get the better of us. We don't want to lose. And if we're materialistic, we don't want to lose money. We don't want to lose our possessions, which are actually more important to us when you think about it than our relationship, and in this case, our relationship with fellow believers. Those who are self-centered and self-serving don't want to have any of their rights violated, right? We protect, we exercise our rights no matter what the cost is to others. I can get an amen or ouch here. I'm leaning more to the side of ouch. And the fact is that Paul's instructions to the believers here can only be understood in terms of utterly different value systems of the Christian, opposed to that of the unbeliever. When Jesus invited us to follow him, we were instructed to take up our cross daily to follow him. And so the Christian is a person who, whose life is actually dominated and directed by the cross. It was the cross that Jesus, it was on the cross that Jesus was wronged. And it brought about our salvation. And if you look at it, the wrongful death of Christ is established by Peter as a model for the Christian. Take some time. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Read verses 18 to 25. This is the reason Jesus taught his disciples not to retaliate. But he taught them to return good for evil. 
in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. This is what Paul teaches again in Romans chapter 12. Jesus taught that if a man forces you to go a mile, you need to go two with them. You know, the one who asks of us should receive from us. Another teaching of Jesus. And so our goal in life as Christians is not to accumulate possessions or to protect or preserve them. We are to give all these things up gladly. They should not have a hold on us. Our attitude should not be to seek our own interests ahead of others, but rather to seek the interest of others ahead of our own. We read that in Philippians. And this being the case, we should be willing to be wronged and defrauded. This is what Paul is saying. Especially for the sake of the gospel and for the testimony of the church. You can't help but read this chapter Oh, actually, any chapter in this book and go, man, these are strong words that Paul has for the church. You know, it's a terrible thing for one Christian to take another Christian to court. It's even worse if the defendant is a Christian crook. In verses 1 to 7, Paul addresses the plaintiff, the one who feels offended or ill-treated. And Paul urges that plaintiff to take his grievance to the church he urges them to act, look at suffer the loss rather than to damage the reputation of the church and maybe to hinder the gospel by exposing the sins of a brother to, to the world. Now, again, we read that love, after all, covers a multitude of sins. But now Paul turns to the defendant, who probably might have a smirk on their face as he's listening to this letter being read. And how comforting to hear Paul rebuke his adversary, the one who's taking him to court. But uh, Paul's got something planned for him. Because when Paul gets into it, he's not gentle. You know, he's looking at the plaintiff and he's saying, well, if you're, you know, you need to be willing to be wronged and defrauded. And this certainly is not an invitation to the others to wrong and defraud more people you know some of these corinthians were crooks obviously and they would pray on people not pray for people right but they would pray on their brothers and sisters in the lord and for these people paul has something very strong to say so you get imagine the the defendant sitting there kind of a little smirk because the other guy's getting balled out by paul but then basically paul says this look crooks don't go to heaven <laughs> think about that for a second and it's true that the the Corinthians were once sinners. Those whose lifestyle was sinful, but that was the past. And this is the presence. Now, life transformation is Christianity 101. You hear that? You know, the Corinthians were a horrible bunch as unsaved sinners, but when they gave their lives to Christ, that, that was all left behind. And 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, 9-11 to 11 is actually a difficult passage. I had actually planned to park here for a while today on, on these uh, verses. But I had to change my mind because it's really a key passage that I cannot afford to go over lightly. It's also a key passage that I have yet to address in our uh, Theology of Sex series that was sort of cut short, short because of COVID. And there are difficulties in this passage, and it's also been misused and misunderstood over years. And there have been people who have been... Uh, deeply hurt spiritually and emotionally by people misapplying this passage. 
There's theology that's changed regarding this passage. And so when I approach this passage next week, next week, I'm going to actually approach it with a lot of trepidation because I actually want to get it right. And I want to be able to communicate it to you properly. And I say all of that because Paul's list in these verses, in verses 9 to 11, it's, it's not complete, but it's a broad, all-inclusive list. And, and the Corinthian church includes those who are characterized by all of these sins. But when they were saved, this became their past, which should be left behind, which should be forgotten. And we have to remember, salvation includes repentance. And sometimes we forget. We forget that repentance means that we not only agree with God, that we are sinners, that we are doomed to destruction, and that Christ's righteousness will save us, but that we will also turn from a life of sin to a life of righteousness. And of course, this does not mean that we will live a life of sinless perfection. But neither does it mean that we can keep on living in sin as we once did before we were saved. We need to understand that salvation is a process of turning from darkness to light, from death to life, from sin to righteousness. Salvation means that we should never consider continuing on in our sin, in our past, even though God's grace is greater than all of our sin. The gospel, the message of Jesus, is all about sinners who are turned from sin to righteousness. The gospel is about turning away from the sins which once dominated us. It's one of the greatest comforts for the Christian. What we were as unbelievers, we are not now as Christians. Our sins of the past are not only forgiven, but they are forgotten by God. And when men and women are released from prison, they are often thought of as criminals, even though they have already paid their debt to society. You know, regretfully, many are still criminals because prison has not produced repentance. At best, former prisoners are ex-offenders. But the Christian who was once a thief is not just an ex-thief. They are a new creation. The old things have passed away. It's replaced by what is new. What we once were as an unbeliever, we are to never be again. That's that 180, that turnaround. There's no second-class citizens in heaven. And based on, upon what is once, uh, our once practice as a sinner, we find another great comfort here in Paul's words that no sinner is gone, far gone for God to save. There is hope for every kind of sinner. And when that sinner repents of his sin, we should never have to turn back. So Paul's thinking is this. You know, what we were in the past doesn't determine where we are today. Because the cross of Christ separates us not only from our sins, but from our past. Jesus stands between us in the present and, is, and us as we were in the past. You know, what we were is not what we are now. And the cross of Christ is the reason that we can be now what we were not then. It's behind us. The cross of Christ is the reason Christians cannot and must not be crooks, as in the case here. It's not because Christians cannot sin, but because we must not. 
We have to fight against that. For a Christian to be a crook is, is for a person to return back to that wicked state from which he or she was already delivered by the grace of God. This is what's getting Paul all fired up. When we're saved, when we come to Jesus and we ask for forgiveness, we were completely saved, severed from our past identity. We are now given a new identity. We were washed. We were cleansed of our sin and our guilt. We were what is Bible called sanctified, set apart from sin unto holiness. We are justified, legally declared righteous through the righteousness of Christ given to us or imputed upon us in faith. And all of this transpires just through the name of Jesus and his finished work on the cross for us. Why is Paul taking this situation in Corinth so seriously? Well, first the issue is the unity of the church. The body of Christ. That church is that one body. The believers are families. And the, the focus of each believer, when you think about it, is to build up the body of Christ. Which means that we got to build up individual believers. Taking a fellow believer to court is not what building up is all about. And generally, we take a person to court to take them apart, right? Not to build them up. Remember that Paul said that the church is a temple, the dwelling place of God. And so to destroy that temple by attacking its members is to actually invite divine destruction. We read that in 1 Corinthians 3. And so lawsuits in Corinth were a denial of the gospel, especially in that culture. To continue to act like you formerly did as sinners denies the radical change that the gospel makes in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1-11 says that we were sinners and now we're saints, a holy nation, declaring the excellence of him who saved us. And so we have to look at it from this perspective that as Christians we cannot persist in thinking and acting as we formerly did apart from Jesus. That whole Christianity 101, transformation. And so there's this word called Reconciliation. And reconciliation, being that peacemaker, is to be the goal of the Christian. I think reconciliation is a timely word for our culture right now and what's going on all around us. But retribution and restitution is the goal of litigation when we go to the courts. Reconciliation is pursued privately. It becomes no more public than necessary. But litigation, litigation is public. Hits the courts, public access, public records. And so Jesus, remember, instructs his followers to see, seek reconciliation instead of litigation. And Because once that process of litigation has started, it's, it's nearly irreversible. And once that process starts, the two litigants, the two people involved, become irreconcilable. The law may do well at defining separation, but it doesn't do well at uniting people. No wonder Paul is distressed. No wonder he's so bent out of shape about what he sees happening in the Corinthian church. We as Christians are to march to a beat of a different drum. We don't live for the present, we live for the future. But our actions in time are governed by future certain realities of the kingdom of God as declared in the scriptures. 
The legal battles that are referred to in 1 Corinthians 6 are concrete examples of the divisions which existed in that church. As Paul first mentioned in chapter 1. And if you think about it, in our own lives, strained relationships, relationships not reconciled in the church, they're actually the cause of all sorts of other sins. Husbands and wives, children and parents, struggle with unreconciled relationships. Many of the problems that we face can be found to originate here with unforgiving, unrepentant hearts. We also have to remember that the motive and the purpose of the litigation is also crucial. Not just the legal basis of the case, because we live in what is called an arguable society. And it's often pride and money and revenge that are the real issues. It's where we put our treasures. And that affected the church. The gospel of Jesus is not only about our reconciliation with God, but it's also about our reconciliation with one another, according to Ephesians chapter 2. You know, to be reconciled with Jesus is to be reconciled with men. There needs to be that peace. And so our calling as Christians is to be reconcilers, to be peacemakers. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this, and this will not happen in the secular courtroom. And the resulting social impact of greedy, petty, or angry Christians in open court has to be avoided. Each believer has a corporate obligation to the kingdom of God. As believers, our witness is crucial. Let me say that the Christian's responsibilities take priority over his or her rights. Contemplate that for a moment. Because we don't want to hear that in our culture today. The essence of the Christian life, as I said earlier, is taking up our cross. It's dying to self. Serving God by serving others. And our goal is neither to promote our own interests or to preserve them, but to sacrifice these things for the case of Christ. That's our goal. In this day and age, churches are being sued much more frequently. Ironically, sometimes it's because the church itself has exercised church discipline. They saw something that was wrong that needed to be corrected. They removed the person from the community. The community does what? It goes exactly what Paul was talking about. And they want to take people to court. And yet there, there may be times when two Christians may appear in court and, and neither of them is attempting to harm the other. In such a case, it could be you know, two parties appear in a court, but that's because their insurance companies are trying to seek some sort of legal judgment. Sometimes we don't have a choice. Or, I, you know, I think about this in, in the application of our culture. Maybe it's necessary to go to court to protect the interests of somebody other than ourselves. Think about this. Suppose you were appointed as a guardian over some young children and the relative was illegally trying to gain control of the property of these children. Property that you were given responsibility for. Well, in such a case, you have, to, you have the right to act and go through the court system to protect the interests of the children. And it's called fiduciary. So when we are acting in a fiduciary capacity, not for our personal self-interest, but a legal action may be necessary for us to serve others well, to protect others. You know, there are times, and I hear this a lot, that where a Christian chooses not to press criminal charges, especially against fellow believers. 
Great, I, I understand that. I understand that when we read this. But there are maybe times when this is actually done for the good of the, that believer and the good of society. Especially in the case of child abuse. Or in violent physical abuse. That may be the occasion of pressing charges is in order. Especially after church discipline has been carried out. There are no nice and neat answers to any of these issues. But we do have spiritual principles to guide us. And so in the final analysis, we should act in a way that we believe God and believe God and take His Word seriously, which actually promotes the Gospel, which actually brings glory to God. I do need to say this as I think about courts and, and Christians. It should be said that some Christians get into legal troubles uh, where they end up going to court, and it's because they didn't actually seek proper legal counsel before making agreements or um, commitments you know lawyers are not there just in the practice to get us out of trouble they are there to keep us out of trouble you know sometimes we may get ourselves into trouble because we want to appear spiritual and we agree on a handshake and we agree to do things without defining the details and then things start getting menacy and we don't have a contract or we have a different understanding or we have a different interpretation of the law or government regulations differences and and disagreements which result from such agreements are unnecessary and the result of our own personal carelessness. Listen, I need to always encourage people that there may be a time to involve both a lawyer and a Christian brother or sister. And if you're fortunate enough, you can find a good Christian lawyer. Yes, they do exist. Who meet both of these requirements. I think most importantly, too, because we're always screaming for justice. Don't, don't ever forget that the courtroom here on earth is not the final court of appeal. God alone will bring justice to this earth. It's before God who we all stand. If we're wronged in this life, be rest assured that God will make things right in the next the ultimate judgment is, for, is, is the one which we should regard as that final judgment. And for those of us who have been forgiven, I think we need to count it a privilege to forgive those who have wronged us. And speaking from experience, it's not easy. You know, sometimes you can't justify it. You can't speak out. You just take it. One more thing which is very important has to be said. The Corinthian Christians ended up in the civil courts because their conflicts were not dealt with in the early stages. Conflicts are like cancer. The sooner we get after it, the sooner it's going to be healed. The more likely it is it's not going to be devastating. But if we sit and we let it fester, it gets worse and worse and worse. As I was writing this, I was wondering if there are those who are Hearing my words, maybe you have relationships and you're in trouble. Husbands and wives, be reconciled to each other. If you can't resolve your conflict by yourselves, don't go to a court of law. Follow the principles of Matthew 18. And the sooner that conflicts are addressed, the more likely the cure 
the healing. Parents, don't wait until it's too late to try to heal broken relationships with your children. You know, believers, you, maybe you know somebody has something against you, some kind of grudge. You know them, and they're believers. Scripture says we're to seek out our brother and sister and try to heal that relationship. And it'll be not only just good for you, but it's also good for the gospel, the glory of God as well. Earlier I mentioned again that life transformation is Christianity 101. That's what conversion's all about. That's what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not just a belief system. It's a way of life. It's a way of thinking. It's, it's clear from the whole passage that the testimony of Christians before the watching world is that of showing a love concern for others instead of ourselves. In our world, we have this selfish, selfish spirit of, i got to have my rights at all costs. That's supposed to be broken within us as believers. Technically, according to Paul, we're to be willing to suffer loss and be willing to be defrauded so that the name of Christ could be advanced. That's what the Scriptures are saying. And I think when that happens, that's what makes the world sit up and notice. When people do not see the attitude, you know, or, you know when the people don't see that transformational attitude in us as Christians, then they look at us and they say, your gospel is no different than anything else we've got. So we're just not interested in what you're pushing. And I think this passage gets to all of us in one way or another. I know for me, it got to me. You know, how it lifts us up about the petty squabbles we can get involved in to see the whole cause of Christ. It also makes us reflect about how our individual actions can cause damage to the kingdom and the world in which we find ourselves. So what's Paul's point here? The point is this says it, for heaven's sake, just stop carrying on. Stop carrying on as if you were still living in that former way, as though Jesus never intervened in your life. Let your life reflect the reality of Jesus' presence in you. And if that seems too hard, if that seems too much to ask, maybe perhaps it's time to take personal inventory and ask whether you've generally had transformation or did you just get religious let's pray Lord we humans have been mastered by sin and we need a savior thank you for redeeming us by your precious blood father thank you that I am not who I used to be thank you that the old is gone the new has come and so I pray that I would be able to live out this new life in holiness and an honor empowered by the Holy Spirit and conformed each day to be like my Savior Jesus. Now, Lord, empower us so that we can live free and please you with the way that we live. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.